Well, this morning we are going to be jumping into Acts 26 as we continue our study through the book of Acts. Um, But for recap, if you weren't with us last week, Paul's been on trial. And last week he was was before Festus and, and appealed to Caesar, made the appeal that he wants to go before Caesar. He didn't want to be taken back to Jerusalem before the the Jewish people, he wanted to go and appeal to Caesar to have a right. Um, and, and as a Roman citizen, he's allowed to do so, and he could appeal to Caesar. And so he says, all right, then to Caesar you'll go. But before he goes to Caesar, this King Agrippa with his sister Bernice say, well, wait a minute, Be- before he goes, we, we want to hear him tomorrow. We want to hear his whole case. We want to hear him defend himself. We want to hear what's going on. And so that's what catches us up to speed with where we are in chapter 26, is, is we're going to see Paul give his defense before King Agrippa. Festus is also there, and Bernice, the king's sister. But oh, let's go ahead and, and start in verse 1 of chapter 26. Here's what it says. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They knew from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise are twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accursed, accused, excuse me, by the Jews. Why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared for you to you this, for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan 
to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now as, thus, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus. But speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. And when he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would speak to your people. God, we need spiritual eyes to see the truth within your word. Lord, we need your spirit to help us rightly apply it. We need your spirit's empowerment to live it out in a way that bears much fruit and glorifies your name. So God, would you speak to us this morning through your word? Would you be glorified in the fruit that comes from it? And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Well, what we're looking at this morning, if you want to take notes, you could throw down the message title, Almost Saved. Almost Saved. You know, in life, there are a lot of moments when close enough or almost is good enough. Right? There are times when I've done different Uh, projects in my yard where it may not be perfect, but it's accomplishing what I want. And so I'll say, it's close enough, right? I wasn't expecting it to be perfect. That's good enough. That'll be fine. Maybe I'm asking my son Hudson a question, and he gives me an answer, and it's kind of a four-year-old version of the answer, and it's not perfect, but it's close enough. That'll work. That's good enough. Maybe it's a a test and you get back your grade and and you almost got a perfect score, but it's still an A and that's that's good enough. That's close enough. Uh, Some of you are cringing like, that's not good enough. But for me, that's more than good enough. Um, But there are these different situations, right? Maybe you parked in a parking spot. You're not perfectly centered, but you're within the lines. It's close enough. It's good enough. But there are other situations when close enough just doesn't cut it when almost isn't good enough. 
I think of situations like um, brain surgery, for example. How many of you want to hear after your brain surgery, well, how'd it go, doc? Eh, it wasn't perfect, but close enough, right? Or I'm, I'm almost positive I can perform this surgery. And you're like, well, I'd prefer to go to the doctor that's fully certain that he can do this surgery. Or if you're going to buy a car or a motorcycle and, and they tell you it's almost safe. And excuse me? Well, yeah, it's almost safe. It's close enough to be in a safe vehicle, motorcycle. So knock yourself out. Now, I want the one that I'm guaranteed is very safe. Not almost, not mostly, not close enough. In fact, I've been watching some of the Olympics. And uh, when I was watching the 100-meter freestyle swim, it's basically an all-out sprint, right? They're in the water to the wall and back, and they're done. And some of them aren't even taking a breath. I mean, they are just going as fast as they possibly can. From first place to sixth place was less than a second difference. Now, you might say it's one second. What's the big deal? You're close enough to winning. It's a big deal because it's the difference between standing on a podium and not even getting recognition because who remembers sixth place in the Olympics? Almost isn't good enough. Close enough. In fact, the difference between third place, bronze medal, and fourth place, not even getting on the podium and getting a medal, was two hundredths of a second. Can you imagine the years and dedication and qualifying and getting to that moment and you're two hundredths of a second away from getting on the podium? Close enough doesn't cut it. Almost, for those people, is not good enough. They want perfection. They want first place. They definitely want a medal. Fourth place just feels like it's not close enough. In fact, many of you know the quote. You've heard it before, but it was originally said by Frank Robinson, the manager of the Cleveland Indians, who said, close don't count in baseball. Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. You get the hand grenade close enough, that'll do the job. But close don't count when it comes to a baseball game. You win or you lose. And what we'll see this morning is even when King Agrippa is almost persuaded to become a Christian, that's not enough. Close enough doesn't cut it when we're talking about heaven or hell, saved or unsaved. Forgiven or still dead in my trespasses, close enough doesn't cut it. But let's go ahead and start back at the beginning. As Paul is before King Agrippa in verse 1. That King Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things which I am accused by the Jews. Now, we need to take a moment, because if you weren't with us last week, you don't fully understand who King Agrippa is and the family line he comes from. Because once you do, you're going to be as shocked as I am when you read that Paul says the words, I'm happy. I'm happy to testify before you, King Agrippa. King Agrippa's great-grandfather tried to kill Jesus, having all male children two years and under killed in Bethlehem. It was King Agrippa's grandfather who had John the Baptist beheaded. Why? Because he was keeping his promise to a young girl who danced seductively for him on his birthday. 
and requested the head of John the Baptist. King Agrippa's father was the one who killed James just to please the Jews and had Peter in prison and planned to kill him as well, except the Lord helped him to be freed from prison before he could. And here we have King Agrippa. This is his family line. But not only that, he's here with his sister. And the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that actually this was not a brother and sister just working together for the common good, that there was actually an incestuous relationship between these two going on that all the people were aware of, but nobody dared say anything about for fear of being killed. And this is who Paul is now going to give his defense for before. A family line known for killing Christians just to please the people, just to please themselves, just to get ahead. Before a brother and sister in a wicked, disgusting relationship that is so far from something that could ever glorify God. And Paul says these words, I think myself happy because today I shall answer for myself before you. This isn't Paul sucking up, okay? This isn't Paul going, how do I get on his good side? I'm so happy it's you, King Agrippa. That's not what's going on here. He's truly happy, but why on earth would he be happy giving his defense before this man? Well, the first reason he's living out the calling God placed on his life. Do you remember what Acts chapter 9 verse 15 said? But the Lord said to him, go. He's speaking to Ananias as he will go to Paul. For he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. Here Paul is happy because he's fulfilling exactly what the Lord told him he was going to go and do. He's speaking before a king. He's testifying what the Lord has done and is doing in his life. He's speaking of the gospel before them. It's a reason to be happy, knowing he's in the will of God. A second reason, as he mentions here in verse 2, why he's happy, is because he gets to answer for himself concerning all these accusations. No longer is he left at the mercy of someone else's spin on the story, someone else's angle that works in their favor. Now, finally, Paul gets to speak for himself, and he's happy. Finally, you're going to get the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth, instead of these other stories people are giving you. And he's happy about that. But also he's happy because as he shares in verse 3, although King Agrippa has many faults, one thing that is in Paul's favor is that he notes that he's an expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. And Paul is thinking, finally, someone who's well-versed, someone who understands these things I'm going to discuss, who gets what I'm sharing about. And Paul's only request to him is that he would hear him patiently. Please, I beg you, just be patient with me. Hear what I have to say, because he's confident if he's heard out, he'll be found innocent. He knows he's done nothing deserving of chains He knows he hasn't done anything the Jews are accusing him of. And so he says, please, just be patient with me. Hear me out. I know I'm innocent. And because he knows the gospel is reasonable, it's sensible, it's understandable. And he wants to be able to share the whole truth. And so he gives his defense here. We've seen this many times if you've gone through us in the book of Acts. We've seen it real time and we've seen him continue to point back to it, to share his testimony of of who he was, 
of this moment and his encounter on the road to Damascus and now what he's been called to. In fact, we spent a whole week looking at these three T's of the testimony, right, as we called it. This tragedy, any life before Christ without Christ is a tragedy. And then there's this transformation that takes place in our conversion by Christ. And then there's this triumph, this victory in Jesus and the commission by Christ that he calls us to. And so he begins by explaining who he was before Christ to King Agrippa. That he lived as a Pharisee. That just as King Agrippa, he did things that were contrary to the name of Jesus. That he shut saints in prison and cast his vote for them to be put to death like Stephen, who was stoned, Paul overseeing his death. In fact, this is also one of the places many will point to why we believe that Paul was a part of the Sanhedrin, because he cast his vote as a part of them. In fact, that wasn't enough for Paul. He would go to foreign cities, he says, to persecute the believers. He wasn't content enough where he was at. He wanted to go all throughout. He wanted to completely wipe the earth of this, these followers of the way, of this group of followers that believed in Jesus. And he tells, this is who I was. This was my conduct before Christ. I wasn't looking for him. I wasn't desiring to follow him. I was a Pharisee, the Pharisee of Pharisees, until this moment on the road to Damascus. Notice, it's interesting, that he was going with authority and commission, he says, on the road to Damascus. But what's going to happen on the road to Damascus is he will come face to face with a greater authority and will be given an even greater commission by Christ. He went on that road with one authority and commission. He's going to end up on the other side of that road with a different authority as his ultimate authority and a different commission and calling by Christ. He sees a light from heaven. He falls to the ground and he hears this voice speak to him asking, why are you persecuting me? And he asks the obvious question, who are you? And he says, it's Jesus who you've been persecuting. And there's that statement in there, it's hard for you, Paul, to kick against the goads of conviction. It's hard for you to continue to push against it, to stiffen your neck, to harden your heart. And finally, Paul gives in. Finally, Paul submits. He surrenders. And there's a call that he is given to rise and stand on his feet. Why? Because God's got a purpose for him. It doesn't stop here on the road to Damascus. Now you're going to go because I have a purpose for you. That you're going to be a minister and you're going to be a witness of the things that you've seen and the things that God will still reveal to him, to the people. A minister and a witness, right? This is that triumph, his commission now from Christ, his new work going forward. A minister, a servant of the message God declared to him, a servant of God, now called into the ministry as a minister of the gospel, but also a witness, testifying to what he has seen and what he has heard. Just as Jesus called the disciples in the beginning of Acts, that they would be his witnesses, that they would testify of what they had seen and heard Jesus do and say. And that he would be sent to the Jews as well as the Gentiles to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light. From the power of Satan to the power of God. 
And Paul is sharing, this is what I was given by God. This was the commission given to me by Christ. This wasn't my idea. I didn't put this plan together. This is what he called me to do. And so what did he do with it? He says, King Agrippa, I wasn't disobedient. When God speaks to you, you listen. And when he tells you to do something, you obey it. And so when God tells him on the road, go and be my witness and testify, Paul says, I wasn't disobedient. I listened. I heard it and I responded to it and I was obedient. Just as the great hymn says, right? Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And Paul says, I I trusted that word from God and I was obedient to it. And so he went and what did he do? But he, he declared. He declared what to the people? I love this. The most concise and clear way to summarize the gospel right here. He calls them to three points of action. He says, repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. That's what he calls people to. That's the response he calls them to. After he has shared with them who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for, that he's the fulfillment of the promise, that now there's this hope that we found in the resurrection from Jesus. Now here's what you do with that. You repent, you turn to God, and you do works befitting repentance. Repent has been said, it's the first word of the gospel. It's what John the Baptist called people to to repent of their sins as he prepared the way for the Messiah. In fact, it's what we see Jesus declaring before the people that they need to repent. It's what we see Paul declaring here. It's what we see Peter in the beginning of Acts at the day of Pentecost when the people are cut to the heart and they look to Peter and they say, well, what should we do? And he says, repent. The first word of the gospel. That's because there is no gospel no salvation, no forgiveness of our sins without a recognition and a repentance of our sin. There needs to be a call to repentance. And so he says, first and foremost, I called them to repent. But secondly, I called them to turn to God. There's more than just a departing from the sinning in my life. Christianity is not just about, I just don't do bad things anymore. That's, that's a part of it. That's the repenting and turning, but that's half the story. It's not just turning away from this. It's turning toward God. The hope we have in heaven is not just, well, at least it's not hell, right? That's, that, sure, that's part of it, absolutely. But we're looking forward to getting to be face-to-face with our Lord and Savior. So there's a turning away, but there's a turning towards something. And Paul says, I called them to turn towards God a pursuit of the God that has pursued us with an everlasting love and pursuit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 says, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There is a turning from idols, but it's turning to the true and living God and following after Him. And that's not a momentary decision you make at salvation. That's a a daily decision as we die to ourselves, as we take up our cross and do what? We follow him. We turn to God. And so there is this dying to self, but a turning towards Jesus. 
It's the life of a Christian walking with Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. And then also do works befitting repentance. A life lived that backs up your belief in Jesus, that demonstrates your change of mind, your change of heart, and your change of direction. That's what repentance is. And so he said there should be works in your life befitting repentance. It should be evident, anybody that looks at you, that you've repented and turned from those things and turned to God, and now there is fruit coming from your life in the things you say about others, in the way you handle your money, in the way we approach our relationships with friends and in our marriages and with our children and with strangers at the store. All of our works should be demonstrating a repentance, a turning from our sin and a turning towards God. And Paul says, this is what I declared to the people I came before. I testified of what Jesus had told me and I told them, you need to repent and you need to turn to this Jesus that met me on the road to Damascus and you need to live a life that demonstrates that repentance. Listen to how Jesus said it in Matthew 3, 8. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. What about James chapter 2, verse 18? But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Your actions matter. And then he moves on. He says, saying no other thing than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. He said, I'm not saying anything out there that's ridiculous. I'm saying the same thing the prophets said. But I'm testifying that, that that one they said would come, the Messiah that would come, he has arrived. That Christ would suffer. And he says, the Messiah has come. Jesus did suffer. He died on the cross. That he would be the first to rise from the dead. Speaking to the resurrection of Jesus, but also, if he's the first, it's because there is more to come. And now we can experience that resurrected life. This is the hope that Paul is speaking to that he has, that hope of resurrection, not just that Jesus was resurrected, but that every single one of us share in that resurrection if we come to Jesus. And he says that he would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. That is the gospel. It's the light in the darkness. It's the hope for all humanity. And it wasn't just for the Jews, it was for the Gentiles as well. And it's this same moment You've been with us. As soon as Paul arrived in Jerusalem and said the word Gentiles, the crowd broke out. The crowd attacked him. And again, when he says Gentiles, the people go crazy. And here he gets to this moment where he says that there is light, there is hope, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles, which I'm guessing majority of us in this room are very grateful for. And as he gets to this word, Festus can't take it anymore. Festus jumps in this moment, interrupts him, and says with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Paul, you're crazy. You've been in the books way too long, buddy, and you don't understand what's going on in reality. Paul, I can't hear another word. You've gone too far. Notice that same moment. 
Paul gets to the moment, he says, to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And Festus won't hear another word. Paul was not the first, though, nor will he be the last to be accused of being crazy for the sake of Christ. Remember what he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You better believe it. Paul's being accused of being mad. This is foolishness. This is crazy, Paul. Festus believes that, but no. For Paul, this is the power of God. That where sin may abound, grace abounded so much more. And even those people that we thought were too far gone, they're not too far gone for Jesus. And it may seem like foolishness to Festus, but it's the power of God to Paul. Even Jesus Our Messiah, our Lord and Savior, when he dwelt among us on this earth, was accused on multiple occasions of being crazy. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not as much eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay a hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind, being accused of being crazy. And again, John chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, there was a division among the Jews because of these sayings. This is when Jesus was declaring that he is the good shepherd, that he lays down his life for the sheep, and he can take it back up again. And there was this division among the Jews because of these sayings, and many of them said, he has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Do you remember in the beginning of Acts, at the day of Pentecost, when they're coming out and they're proclaiming the mighty things of God, the wonders of God in many different languages that they don't know themselves, what do the people accuse them of? Acts 2, verse 13, others mocking said, they are full of new wine. They're drunk. They're not speaking anything that makes sense. They're crazy. They're out of it. Don't listen to them. Many people have heard of Dwight L. Moody, D.L. Moody. And the incredible things he did for the Lord. But what many people don't know is as a young, zealous man for the Lord who was going out and reaching kids and going out and preaching the gospel boldly, that he had coined the nickname Crazy Moody, is what people would call him. This guy's nuts. He's just out of it. Don't listen to that guy. He's the crazy guy in town. Stay away from him. We all know that not to be true. I remember taking many of our youth a few years back and we were staying in Big Basin State Park and going to Santa Cruz each day for summer camp. And and one day we had this time where we went and we just went all along the Santa Cruz boardwalk and were evangelizing and just in small groups going around and talking to anybody that would listen to tell them about Jesus. And I remember afterwards, we, we come together and we have a meal and we're kind of discussing how it went. And one, one student was sharing, I went and talked to a guy and and told him what I believe, and told him about Jesus, and his response was, it's okay, buddy, I used to have make-believe friends too. Right, just looks at him, you're crazy, kid. You're out of it. I used to have make-believe friends too. You'll grow up and you'll realize that's all foolishness one day. It's foolishness to the world. It's crazy, it doesn't make sense. But to those who are believers, to those who are saved, it is the power of God. 
Don't be afraid of being called a fool for the sake of Christ. It's happened to many great men and women of the faith, and it's going to continue to happen even today. I remember sitting in a ditch working on water pipe with guys who are telling me, you seriously believe that that rainbow in the sky represents a promise from God that he won't flood the earth again? And I'm like, absolutely. And they're like, you're crazy. You seriously believe that this Bible is actually living words of God, that you're supposed to follow it, that everything in there is true? Absolutely. You're crazy. It was foolishness then. They couldn't get it. And that's okay. I wasn't afraid to be called a fool for Christ because I think of men like Noah in Scripture building an ark. Well, what's an ark? I don't really know. Well, what are you building it for? A flood. Well, what's a flood? Not really sure about that either. All I know is I got to build this thing and it's going to take years of my life, but I'm going to build it. Noah's crazy, guys. Stay away from Noah. Don't let your kids around Noah. He's building something and he doesn't know what it is for something he doesn't know what's coming. Guy's out of his mind. Or a man like Abraham being called the father or the, multi, the father of the multitude or the father of a great nation yet without kids. You're, you're, the, you're the father of what? You don't have any kids? That's your, who named you? This is embarrassing. This is shameful. This is wrong. And now you're going to a land you don't know? Where are you going? I don't know, but I'm going. You're crazy, man. I'm just obeying the words of the Lord. It's foolishness to the world. But these men hung on a promise from God that would prove to make them the only wise man in a world of fools. When people would laugh and question Noah's sanity, there would be one day they would all be screaming and crying out, oh, if we only would have been on that ark with Noah. The guy we all thought was crazy was the only one who actually had some insight into what was going to happen. People may not get it yet. But one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is Lord. And every fool that on this earth for Christ is going to be seen as the wise person who built their house upon the rock, who responded to the words of God and rightfully surrendered to the Lord while there was still time. And here Paul is being accused of being mad and being a fool. Little does Festus know Paul is the smartest man in that room because he knows who the true and living God is and he's submitting and surrendered to him. Not to the pomp of King Agrippa, not to the authority of Festus, but to the true and living God who is over all authority in heaven and on earth. And so Festus may say he's mad, but Paul says, I'm not mad. I'm speaking truth. I'm speaking reason. I'm speaking what truly makes sense. Not a truth. The truth. The absolute truth. Objective, undeniable truth. Just as Jesus declared in John 14, 6, that he is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Just as John 17, 17 says, sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. And Paul says, I'm speaking the words of truth. I'm not speaking my opinion on a matter. I'm not speaking this, this cool new phase that I'm hearing going on. I'm not speaking my agenda. I'm speaking the truth. And God's word is truth. 
You want to say something that matters? You want to say something that will endure throughout all generations and will never fail? Speak the words of God. It is truth, and it's truth that people need to hear today. But also he's speaking with reason. The gospel is reasonable. It's rational. It's so simple a child could comprehend it. Yet it's so complex that we'll never be able to fully grasp the depths of wisdom and love and grace and forgiveness that it encompasses. Remember, even back in chapter 17, when he's speaking to these people in Athens, and what does he do in the temple? He reasons with them because it's reasonable. And he's excited to share this to King Agrippa because he knows if you're willing to go through truth and reason, you're going to come to the truth of the gospel, that Jesus came and died and was resurrected, and he offers hope for Jews and Gentiles alike. And he says boldly here, I love what Paul does. He flips the script. He turns it around on them, and he says, I am convinced that none of these things escape the king's attention. And he says, King, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. And he starts all of a sudden turning it back at the king. He's the one on trial, but now he's putting the king on trial and saying, do you believe what the prophet said? Because I'm telling you right now, I've seen these things come about that the prophets testify it, and I'm backing up what they're saying. And you claim to believe it. You claim to be an expert. I didn't do these things in a corner. These things weren't done secretly. You've heard about Jesus. You've heard about what's been done. Do you believe? It's personal. It's a challenge to King Agrippa. It's meant to call the hearer to a response, and that's what the gospel does. It calls you to a response. That's why when Peter shares it, people say, what do we do? Because it's calling them to a response. A gospel that just leaves people walking away feeling good and fuzzy about themselves isn't the gospel. The gospel should draw you to a place where you need to respond. You can accept it or you can deny it, but you've got a response. And here he calls King Agrippa, the one in authority in that room, to a response. Do you believe it? I know you do. So what are you going to do with this information? And the response of the king, he says to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Other versions can say, are you so quickly trying to convince me to be a Christian? Do you think you can so quickly come in here and testify and now I'm going to be a believer? He says, you almost persuade me. King Agrippa recognizes the wisdom in what Paul is saying and sees not only Paul's innocence, as he will declare in a moment, but that there's actually a foundation to back up what Paul is saying. That he's not crazy and he's not mad. And even though Festus wants to claim that, King Agrippa's not saying that. He's saying, actually, you almost convinced me. You almost persuaded me to believe what you believe, Paul. How sad, though, is that response? You almost persuade me. Even that word possesses a contradiction within itself. All and most. Those two things don't go to that. Is it all or is it most of it? Back to this, is it close enough or is it all together? And he says, you almost persuade me. I'm almost there, Paul. If only the king would have been 
all in on the gospel. If only it wouldn't have stopped on the fence saying, ooh, I'm almost there. Ah, you almost got me. Oh, that he would have been all in on the gospel. If he would have been all in on repenting of his sins as Paul called people to. If he would have been all in on turning to God as Paul had called people to. If he would have been all in on doing works befitting of repentance like Paul was calling people to. Then he could have known what it means to be in a relationship with an all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, all-loving God who did all the work for us so that we can be in relationship with him. Almost won't cut it in salvation. This man may almost be persuaded. He's almost saved, which means he's almost forgiven. He's almost a child of God. He's almost delivered from hell. But almost saved is fully lost. Almost alive is still dead in your sin and trespasses. And here, King Agrippa declares, I'm almost persuaded. I wonder if there are any in the building today that would be described as that same way that King Agrippa describes himself. That you're almost all in on Jesus. You're still kind of on the fence and you're, you're coming to church and maybe some of you, I'm sorry, you feel like you just got put on the spot because you were like, I came to church. I thought that was going to get him off my back. Sorry, but I'm praying that doesn't. I'm praying that, that they're not satisfied until you're all in. Not almost. But maybe some of you are still on that fence. Yeah, I'm almost all in on Jesus. I mean, I, I go to church and, and I kind of read the Bible once in a while and I'm good with that, but I'm not going to like devote my life to it. I'm not going to let it like change my family, change my work life, change my marriage, change how I, I'm not, I'm not going to let it just change everything. You don't want to stand before the Lord one day and almost get into heaven. You don't want to almost be forgiven of your sins. Here, King Agrippa is almost there. Maybe you've heard the truth, but you haven't received it. Maybe you feel the conviction of your sin, but you've yet to repent of it and turn from it. Maybe you know where you shouldn't be, and that's where you're at currently. But you're not willing to do the work to get where you should be, the harder work. My plea to you this morning is that today would be the day you would go from almost to altogether. From almost to all in. Because listen to Paul's response to King Agrippa. He doesn't say, wow, you come from a bad family, so if you're almost persuaded, that's pretty good. He's not celebrating that. He says, oh, King Agrippa, I wish that you and everybody else in here, that includes Bernice, that includes Festus, that includes all the guard around me, I wish that all of you would not be almost, but all together. That you would share in everything that Paul has shared in, except for these chains. I love his mercy, his grace, to these people who have him on trial, an innocent man, and he's not saying, I just wish I could switch places with you. You could be in these chains. He's saying, no, I wish you could be saved. 
I wish you could know the abundant life that Jesus has for you if you would just surrender. Paul deeply desired salvation for those before him. Even in his chains and wrongful conviction. Now we don't fully know why King Agrippa could get to this point that he would say, I am almost persuaded, but would not fully be persuaded. Perhaps he was too ashamed in the presence of Bernice and Festus to admit that this man that Festus sees as a fool is actually the smartest one in the room. Maybe he saw the chains on Paul and he feared a similar outcome if he would surrender to this gospel and follow this God. That him being the king with the power and the authority would have to lay down his crown and his authority and submit to a greater king and a greater authority. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. Oh, that men were wise enough to see that suffering for Christ is honor, that loss for truth is gain, that the truest dignity rests in wearing the chain upon the arm rather than endure the chain upon the soul. Oh, that King Festus, or excuse me, that Festus and King Agrippa in this moment would realize, would be wise enough to see that Paul may be in chains, but he is the freest man in that room. That he may be on trial, but he is already free of the penalty of his sins before God. And these men who stand in authority over him, that think they can declare what will become of him, they're the ones that are in bondage to their sin. They are the ones that need to be freed out of their bondage and surrender to the God who is in control. In this moment, they stand up. They're done hearing Paul. They leave the room and they begin to discuss. And, and King Agrippa concludes that he's innocent. In fact, he says this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. They find nothing deserving of his chains, nothing deserving of death that he's done. And they see this appeal to Caesar as something he can't get out of. We're not going to be the ones to tell Caesar, yeah, he appealed to you, but we didn't send him to you. So we're going to send him. He's going to Caesar. If he wouldn't have appealed to Caesar, they're thinking, ah, he could have been free off right now. But what they see as chains to an appeal is truly chains to the gospel. Because you remember when Paul was in prison, the Lord met him, the Lord stood by him, and the Lord said, you've been faithful You've declared my works in Jerusalem. Now you're going to go to Rome. This is all part of God's plan. And he's getting Paul to Rome. All expenses paid, in fact. Maybe not the way he planned to travel. But he's going to get him to Rome to go and testify there. Exactly what he's testifying here of the gospel of Jesus. They see Paul as, oh, he's bound by this appeal. Poor guy. No, 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 he's bound by the gospel. His chains are in the gospel. He's bound by what God has called him to do. This was all part of God's plan. As we close at this time, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on back up. And we're going to close with a song in a moment. But we can't go through a section of scripture like this and recognize that there can be those that are almost there. There can be those that are so close and yet are missing it. 
without giving you an opportunity to respond. I don't know what brought you here this morning. I don't know everything going on within your life. But if there's anybody here this morning, anybody who feels like, if I'm being honest, I'm more of King Agrippa than I am Paul. I'm more almost persuaded and kind of playing with the idea and interested in it, but I've never taken the step to do as Paul called people to do, to repent of my sin, to turn to God, and to do works befitting of repentance. But today, I want to make that decision. I want to get off the fence, and I want to be all in on Jesus. I want to finally surrender. And I want to, I want to acknowledge what he's been all along, that he is my Lord, that he is my Savior, that he is my King. Above all kings, even King Agrippa, he's the Lord of Lords. If that's you, I just want to, I want to give you a moment right now. If you want to raise your hand and acknowledge that's me, and I want to make that decision. Praise God. Hallelujah. Thank you. Anybody else? Well, then I would love to pray for you too right now. As the Lord's doing a work in your heart, I want to pray that he would continue that work and that it would fully form and bear that fruit that glorifies him, that honors him. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for these two ladies. Lord, and anyone else in here who may have raised their hand. Lord, who are responding to, to what you're saying. God, your word is true. And your, sp- your spirit brings power. Lord, and as you have spoken to their lives, I know it is not my words, Lord, it is your words. God, as you have called them to be all in. Not almost persuaded, not on the fence, but all in. Fully committed, fully surrendered fully devoted to the cross and to Christ. God, I pray you would meet them in that space. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them those things that have got to go. Lord, I pray that you would show them the path moving forward. And God, I pray that you would surround them with brothers and sisters who can encourage them daily, who can help them not grow weary when doing good who continue to draw their eyes to Jesus. You are the author and finisher of our faith. It's all in you, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that they leave here not with a weight that feels like this work that they need to do to perform for you, but, Lord, that they would feel that that yoke that is easy, that burden that is light when they come to you, that they would walk here feeling more free than they ever have, and more certain of what they're living for than ever before. And that you would be glorified, God, that you would be honored. And that they would bear much fruit for your name. And it's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. And all God's people said, amen.